Welcome to the prolific teaching ministry of Pastor Emmanuel Iren, lead pastor of Celebration Church International. It is his vision to partner with you for your progress and joy in the faith. Ready, set, grow. Thank you, Jesus. So we take it a notch higher today. Solideo Gloria. Latin expression and it means to the glory of God alone. For the glory of God alone. Listen, it's a worldview. It's a way of life, a perspective. It's not just a doctrine. It's how to live, how to see life. You see, one of the most important questions that you must ask yourself and answer on time is why am I here? What is my purpose? What is the chief end of a man's life? You must know it because you see, you haven't started to live until you can answer that question. Why am I here? Well, in a very generic way, that answer can be found in Revelation chapter 4 verse 11. The 24 elders are worshiping God. And they say, thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory, honor, and power. It says, for you have created all things for your pleasure. They are and were created. So well, that tells you why you're here and why you're alive. For the pleasure of God, you see, one thing that Protestants and Catholics do that we need to bring to the charismatic church is catechism. And what is catechism? It's just a statement of faith in question and answers format. And one, one of the most popular catechisms, the Westminster Catechism, the question is asked, what is the chief aim of man? The chief end of man. The answer is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And so we've been talking about the glory of God in the incarnation, in the resurrection of Christ, in the gospel. And today we want to talk about the glory of God in man. It's a privilege that we can be envoys. Of the presence of God. We can be the manifestation of the glory of God to our world. What a life, what a privilege. It's one of the most powerful things you can ever discover. If you ask me, what is the deepest revelation of your life? My answer would be this that I get the privilege to introduce God to my world. That God has ordained that everyone whose paths would cross mine would know beyond a shadow of doubt that there is God. Like I said, it's a worldview. It's a way to live. Turn your Bibles with me. To page one. Genesis chapter one. 
verse 26. <clears throat> 26 says, And God said, Let us make man in our image and after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. Verse 27, everybody read together loud as you can, one to go. It says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. What does it mean to be created in the image of God? The Hebrew word translated image actually means reflection. Or representation. So, by God saying man is created in his image, it means man gets to reflect God. Man gets to represent God. Are you listening to me? We're talking about your life, who you are, your destiny. I get to reflect God, to represent God in my world. And there are three ways in which we do this. There are three levels in which man represents God on the earth. Number one, we represent God as stewards of God's creation. We represent God as stewards of God's creation. Number two, as magistrates. When we see men as magistrates, men as leaders, that's a reflection of God. And number three, we reflect God as men in Christ. What is number one? Number two? Number three? It is in these three ways that we are the image of God. There is a Latin expression for image of God, which is the title of my sermon today. It is called Imago Dei. And it is spelled I-M-A-G-O, and Dei is spelled D-E-I. It simply means image of God in Latin. So I want to start from the first one. Stewards of God's creation. So now, in the creation of the earth, there is a structure. It seems as if every single day, there's a crescendo from the less important to the most important. And then on the sixth day, the zenith of God's creation, man is formed. The highest and the most important thing God ever created. And he blessed him and said, I have dominion over all physical creation. The fish of the sea, the fowl of the air, and ever, over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. Listen. It is both theologically and philosophically profound that we are created in the image of God. That statement answers a question that science can never answer. And I want to do a bit of apologetics this night, even though that's not my chief aim. You know, a man named um, Tim Keller, I think, you know, told a story about doctors who were making their rounds in a hospital. You know how doctors do from ward to ward in the teaching hospital? And finally, they went to 
a word that had a woman who was depressed. And after they had um, examined her, the doctors, you know, since it's a teaching hospital, the senior doctor was teaching. So we asked, said, so what do we do to this woman? And after everyone had spoken and said all the medical things they thought they could pre prescribe, one of them said, I think it would really help to reassure her that she's a valuable, worthwhile human being. And to the shock of everyone, the lead doctor said, how do you know that? How do you know she's a worthwhile human being? And everyone else just laughed. They thought he was joking. And then the atheist doctor said, no, seriously, how do you know? You can't prove that scientifically. That's what he said. You can't prove the significance of man scientifically if everything we know came by a cosmic accident. It means that we, there is no intent behind everything. No divine architect, no brilliant mind. And so, even though science admits that man is more complex, science doesn't truly opine that man is more important. Man is more significant. In fact, one of them was quoted to say, I see no reason attributing to man a significant difference in kind from a baboon or from a grain of sand. A notable scientist said this. But the creation worldview answers a question that we all implicitly know. We know the answer to this. Make no mistake. It doesn't matter what any scientist who is just drunk in silly knowledge says. If a, drug, if a dog is drowning and a child is drowning, instinctively, who are you going to save first? Now, they might want to deny why they want to save the child first. But they know better. And that's why I said, the fact that we are created in the image of God is so profound in philosophy and in theology. Isn't it interesting? The atheist will say, I don't believe there's a God. If there is God, why is there so much evil in the world? And to this you must ask, if there is no God, what is evil? What is evil? Evil becomes subjective. If there is no moral lawgiver, evil is subjective. Evil is just a popular consensus. You get what I'm saying? So, and our history proves this. Once upon a time, somewhere in this country, if twins were born, they were going to be killed. And just in case you say, oh, we were backward. In America, not too long from today, men of color were considered to be of lower value. In fact, in some sense, that struggle is still is ongoing, isn't it? So do we finally agree that slavery is wrong because the majority says so? There has to be an objective 
moral law that is higher and bigger than all of us. Say loud amen if you believe that. Amen. Just imagine an atheist governor complaining like one did, saying a particular tribe are being treated like beasts. Well, science says we are all beasts. But God said, you were created in my image. And that has implications. There is a way you must treat every human. A way you must see every human. And listen, this is the reason why you might be hungry and catch a chicken out there, slaughter it for food, but you must never touch a human being. It has to be bigger than instincts for you. I'm explaining it doctrinally. Look at Genesis chapter 9. Genesis chapter 9, verse 5 and 6. In summary, just because I have a lot to cover, it says, I will hold you accountable for the life of your fellow man because they are the image of God. That's simple. That's why it's wrong to kill. Not because people say so. But because they are the image of God. And that's why you should talk to people nicely and treat people nicely. In James chapter 3 verse 9, James is chiding and correcting people. He says, therewith bless we God, even the Father, and therewith cause, therewith cause we men which are made after the similitude of God. So the reason you should talk to people nice is because they're made in the image of God. I wish I had enough time to dwell on this. Listen, the Bible says, the psalmist says, the heaven, even the heavens are the Lord's. The earth has it given to the children of men. We are stewards of God's creation. It's such a big privilege. It's a mentality. Let me tell you something. Nobody who understands this will be unserious in school. Because without anybody telling you about the importance of education, Imago Dei should have a fascination about creation. Because God put me in charge. I want to know how it works. I want to know how it works. How do planes fly? How many planets are there? How does the earth rotate around its orbit? How fast? Because of who you are, you have to be interested. Maybe you used to go to school or you, you've, you went to school just because everybody was going to school. But now, this is something deeper. God has put you in charge. You have dominion. <laughs> you should know as many animals as possible. Know how they function. You should know how to get the best from the soil. How to till the ground. You should understand all the resources that are trapped and hidden under the earth. And let me tell you something. Poverty comes as a result of lack of consciousness that we are the image of God. Because I want to tell you something. If you have a growing fascination for how things work, inadvertently, 
you will get rich. Because that knowledge that you will acquire, people pay for it. Are you getting what I'm saying? Conversation for another day. The next way in which man reflects the image of God is as magistrates. And I'm not going to spend time on this at all because time is far spent. In Romans chapter 13, verse 1 and 2, <coughs> Paul said this. He said, let every soul be subject to the higher power. For there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resists the power, resists the ordinance of God. So he's saying, in a human leadership structure, all things being equal, if they do what they are meant to do, you're meant to recognize it as a reflection of God. Something ordained of God. Such that if you resist it, you're resisting God. And God has his way of dealing with leaders that are air, that air. He said, I've said you are gods, but you shall die like men. You've corrupted justice. So, assuming there were no excesses with that, this is just God's idea. We are people of honor. Say loud, amen. amen. And now to the third. And the most important. We are the image of God in Christ. Paul explained it this way. He says, as we have borne the image of the earthy, of the, of the earthly, we will bear the image of the what? Of the heavenly. You know that text, don't you? First Corinthians 15. As we have borne the image. So, now this is beautiful. So, we are just like the first Adam. We have dominion over the fish of the sea. Over the fowl of the air, over every creeping thing. So the first Adam has dominion. God blessed the first Adam. And that's wonderful. But then you come to Romans chapter 8, and then he tells you something that he says, Whom he did foreknow, he did predestinate to be conformed. To the image, not of the first Adam, but of the second, of Jesus Christ. So there is another conformity there. There is a blessing in the first Adam. In the first Adam, you are blessed to have dominion over the fish of the sea, fowl of the air. But in the second, you are blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. So, you have to see that the incarnation introduced a, live, a different level of honor for humanity. So, the psalmist, Psalm chapter 8 from verse 5, you know, talks about someone saying, What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you have visited him? You have made him a little lower than the angel. The original construction actually says, a little while lower. And the following verse proves it. You have made him a little while lower than the angels, but you have crowned him with glory and honor. So this was a prophecy that the glory and the honor that man will exude will be greater. Lower than the angels, but just for a while. And so, 
the writer of Hebrews is doing a commentary of this in Hebrews chapter 2. You know, so whilst you know Psalm chapter 8 from verse 5 to 9, you need to see the interpretation, the commentary in Hebrews chapter 2 from verse 6. It says, but one in a certain place testified saying, what is man that thou art mindful of him or the son of man that you have visited him? You have made him a little lower than the angels, crowned him with glory and honor and did set him over the works of your hand. It says, thou put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all things in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. Now he says, but we see not yet all things put under him. So he's telling you there is a prophecy in Psalms chapter 8 that hitherto was not fulfilled. Psalmist says, you made him a little while lower than the angel and have crowned him with glory and honor. But he says, well, we don't quite see that yet. How is that going to be fulfilled? The next verse. Come on, I thought you were in Hebrews. Verse 9. Just to be sure you're following, the last statement in verse 8 says, well, we don't see all things put under his feet. How will man step into this prophecy, this prophetic destiny? Verse 9 says, but we see Jesus. This is what the incarnation launches us into. We see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death. It had to be so, so he could die for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. So now, don't forget what we talked about yesterday, all right? Because of the incarnation and the resurrection of Christ, he launched us into something great. I told you yesterday, for the first time, a man stood in front of the gates of heaven and said, lift up your hands. This was the first time a man will enter heaven. And he didn't just enter, he sat down. And now God says, you are seated with him in heavenly places, which happens to be far above principalities and powers. This is way beyond the jurisdiction of the first Adam. This is no, no, no longer dominion over fish and over cattle. This is above principalities and powers and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. The first Adam, listen, the first Adam was a little lower than the angels. The second is going to judge angels. That's what the Bible says. The image of God. Listen, what I'm defining to you is adoption, sonship, what it means to be a son. In the Bible, when you hear the word son of God, many people don't understand it. Because, you know, we, are, we have the propensity to think procreation. Ah, God has a son who is his wife, you know. And it's very ironic that Muslims, for instance, believe that Jesus was born of a virgin, but don't believe that Jesus is the son of God. It means they don't really understand what we mean by sonship. See, when you talk about sonship in the Bible, you're referring to three things. Number one is his virgin birth. So the Bible tells us that when the angel told Mary that she was going to have a child, she asked a question. 
She said, how shall these things be, seeing that I know not the man? And what was his answer? The Holy Ghost will come upon you. The power of the highest shall overshadow you. He says, therefore, that holy thing which shall be born of you shall be called the son of the highest. Why will he be called the son of the highest? Because there was no human contribution in the procreation. Do you understand what I'm saying? So when we talk about the sonship of Jesus, we're referring to the virgin birth. It's similar, you see. When you're reading what we call the genealogy in the book of Luke, it's very interesting that when it got to Adam, you know, he kept saying, this person, the son of this person, the son of this person, the, the, father, the father of this person. And when he got to Adam, he called him son of God. Why was Adam called the son of God? Because Adam had no biological father. As it was with the first Adam, so it was with the second. Just virgin birth. That's what it means. I'll never forget street evangelism, you know, trying to explain this to a woman. She said, Jesus is Muslim. Jesus is not the son of God. I knelt down. I grabbed her. I said, but the Quran says he's born of a virgin. I said, yes. So who is his father? Then she finally got it. That's what it means. The second meaning of son of God is referring to the fact that he was begotten from the dead. Hebrews 1. You are my son. This day have I begotten you. The Bible says that he was declared to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead. That's so powerful. I wish I had enough time to explain that. But the first, the, the, the third meaning of son. <laughs> Are you with me? This will change your life. The son of God has the privilege to reveal God to the world. That's who his son is. It's a title. It's a responsibility. If you are the son of God, it means you have the responsibility to reveal God to your world. Oh boy. Oh boy. Are you here? Oh my God. Oh my God. Who did I say a son is? Now look at this. In John chapter 1 verse 18, John said, no man had seen God at any time. But the only begotten son, which is in the bosom of the father, has declared him. That's what sonship him. That's what sonship is. <clears throat> you get the responsibility, the privilege to declare the father, to show the father to the world. This is why in John chapter 14, Philip looked at Jesus and said, show us, show us the father and it suffice it he said, have I been so long with you and you don't know me? Don't you know that if you have seen me, you have seen who? See, that's what sonship is. When the son of God shows up anywhere, you don't ask for the father. Because you see, the transcendent God who dwells in unapproachable lights has chosen to manifest himself in the Son. And so he says, the fullness of the Godhead dwells in him bodily. 
Turn to John chapter 14. I want to show you that. I just want to show you that. Oh my goodness. This is, this is so powerful. This is going to bless you. Ooh. John chapter 14 verse 9. Jesus said unto him, Have I been so long with you? And yet you don't know me, Philip? He that has seen me has seen the Father. Wow. And how sayest thou then, she was the father, believest not thou that I am in the father and the father in me? Listen. Jesus just said, because the father is in him, the father is always present where he is. Take note of that. And then from this conversation, he takes a step back and begins to talk about the Holy Ghost. He said, the Father in me does the works. And then he begins to tell us about the Holy Ghost. He says, in my Father's house, there are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. He says, I go to prepare a place for you. He didn't say so that where I will be, you will be also. He said, so that where I am. So he wasn't talking about a geographical location. He was talking about a position. Are you getting it? He said, so that where I am, you will be also. Where did he say he is? He says he's in the Father, and the Father is in him. So after he talks about the Holy Spirit, he comes to verse 20. And this is what he says, John 14, 20. Everybody read together loud as you can, want to go. At that day, you shall know that I'm in the Father. And my father is in where? And ye in me and I in you. So once upon a time, he said, the father is in me. And because of that, don't look for the father. And now he says, a day is coming. Not only will I be in the father and the father in me, you will be in me. And I in you. This is what Paul was describing when he says, now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. He says, as though God doth beseech you by us. The same idea. Oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. Listen, if you get this, it will change your life. Like someone brilliantly said, the proof of the resurrection is not an empty tomb. It is the spirit in the heart of man. We prove that Jesus is alive with our lives. We prove that Jesus is alive with the miracles. We prove that Jesus is alive with signs. He said, you shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you and you shall be witnesses unto me. That's how we prove it. Not by regular doors to the empty tomb. but by demonstrating the reason Christ with our lives. Listen, because you are the image of God, your generation must not look for God. Oh God. If your generation has unanswered questions about God, it's your fault. I'm giving you a mentality. Did you hear what I said? If your generation has unanswered questions 
about God, it's your fault. <laughs> because the onus is on you to show beyond reasonable doubt that Christ is alive. You show it with your life because he's in you. And in him we live and move and have our being. This is the biggest thing you can do with your life. To reflect God. To demonstrate God. Are you with me? Yes, Turn the Bibles. 2 Corinthians 5. <laughs> this is the new purpose of life in Christ. In verse 15 it says... And that he died for all, that those who live should not henceforth live unto themselves. This is a higher purpose. A higher perspective to life. You don't live unto yourself. There is more to you than that job that you are looking for. More to you than daily bread. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. There is more to you. Isn't it boring? Go to school, get a job, marry, have children, die. That's boring. He died for all that those who live should not henceforth live unto themselves. I've told you a million times, there must be a henceforth moment in your life. A time where you decide, I'm not going to live for myself. I'm no longer going to live for myself. I'm going to live for the honor and the praise of God. You live for his honor and for his praise. There must be a henceforth moment in your life. A definite time where you suddenly realize, I am bought with a price. Therefore, I must glorify God with my mortal body. My life is not my own. I told you in the afternoon, even you are not allowed to dishonor your body. Even you. It is beyond your power to treat your body anyhow. It's not yours to abuse. Are you listening to me? Say, I'm bought with a price. It says that henceforth, we should not live unto ourselves. Oh my God. Listen. What if you wake up in the morning with this mindset? I'm not living for myself. I'm living for God. For the fame of his name on the earth for the fame of his name. He's making a name for himself with my life. Paul says, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. He says, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What am, your life will change if you meditate on these things. Paul said, whatever you do, in word or in deed, do in the name of Jesus. <clears throat> Don't do it reliant on your education, on your natural strength. Do in the name. It's a different mindset when you consider yourself an envoy, a courier of God. Do it in the name of Jesus. When you start living like this, the supernatural will become natural to you. When you do in the name of Jesus, 
in the name of Jesus. You live your life in the name of Jesus. The possibilities of Jesus become your possibilities. I don't know if you understand all I'm saying. We read 2 Corinthians 5.15, right? Now, when you come to verse 17, a lot of people think that verse 17 is talking about salvation and they are not entirely wrong. But it's beyond that. It's talking about ministry. It says, therefore, if any man be in Christ, <laughs> this is a new worldview. Because you are the image of God. You've been conformed to the image of the Christ. It says, therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Now, what do you, you say? What is passed away? My old sinful life? Yes. But also your old petty priorities. That is passed away also. Because now, don't forget verse 15. You live for the fame of his name. That those who live should not henceforth live unto themselves. Realign priorities. That's what is new in your life. Not just your old life. All things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Before you could just wake up and say, what business is raining now? Crypto. Okay, I will do crypto. But now... Thank God for good ideas. But you do all things in the name of Jesus. You open yourself to divine leading. Are you getting what I'm saying? Where to travel, where to study, if to marry. Something don't hear often. Everything, 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 everything in my life. Subject to his name. And it says, and all things are of God. Who has reconciled us to himself. Come here, young man. Thank you. Who has reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ. And given us the ministry of reconciliation. He's explaining what is new in your life. Like I told you, what is new in your life is not just that your old sinful self is gone. What is new is that now you have a ministry, a ministry of reconciliation. The ministry of reconciliation is not the work of Christ alone. I want you, listen, you might have heard me talk around this before, but immerse yourself into this ideology. This is the purpose of my life. He says, now, he tells you how the ministry of reconciliation was initiated and how it is established. He said, to wit that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and has given us the word of reconciliation. Now, that's so powerful. This changes. It changed my life. This is what Jesus was explaining to Philip. The Father is in me. So, don't look for the Father. Now, Paul is saying, God was in Christ. Reconciling the world unto himself. And now, God is in you. Announcing reconciliation. See, so, we have the same ministry 
as Christ. We are as responsible for reconciliation as Christ. Listen, in Christ is the provision of reconciliation. In us is the announcement. So it is our responsibility to continue where Christ stopped. In him is the provision. In us is the announcement. Jesus did it, we tell it. Jesus did it, we show it. Jesus did it, we declare it. Thank you. That means we can talk the way Jesus talked. Because we have the same ministry. If Jesus showed the Father to the world through the provision of reconciliation, we show the Father to the world through the announcement of reconciliation. That's why Paul says, now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. That's what he said next, isn't it? He says, as though God doth beseech you by us. Listen, that phrase, God doth beseech you by us, will change your life if you meditate on it. That's the purpose of my life. I'm a courier, an envoy. Everyone whose path crosses mine, it is an opportunity for God to touch them. It says, God is beseeching people by my life. God is reaching people with my life. God is touching people by my... So, I'm learning to function like Jesus. The same way Jesus sat on a well and told that woman with all confidence. He said, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that says to you, give me water, you would have asked him and he would give you living water. So, he sees it as the gift of God to that woman that their paths crossed that day. What a mindset. What a mentality. Ah... Anybody whose path crosses mine, that's the gift of God to them. I'm teaching you how to talk. If you knew the gift of God, that I'm your roommate. If you knew the gift of God, that we walk in the same office. If you knew the gift of God, that you know me. If you knew the gift of God that we are talking right now. See, the power of God will not work in your life until you begin to say it as it is. I'm teaching you the vocabulary of sonship. The vocabulary of adoption. Start talking like that. It's the gift of God. Everywhere I go, God is beseeching my world through me. God is, God is touching men through me. Because I'm here, my generation will not look for God. <laughs> Did you hear what I said? Because I'm here. Because I'm here. <clears throat> what do you mean, show us the Father? Have I been so long with you and you still haven't seen? What do you mean? If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. That's the ministry of reconciliation. When you position yourself in alignment with this truth, you will see a new dimension of glory and power in your life. Because the power of God is revealed in sonship. I have the answers to the questions of my world. I have the solution. Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. I have the answers.
thank you for listening. We are sure that you have been blessed. For inquiries, reach us on our helpline 0809-996-7000. Blessings.